You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. New video tonight from the Andrew Berry murder trial shows the father with his two young daughters the day before their bodies were discovered. Sarah McDonald has more on why the video was shown in court and how their mother, who testified today, recalled receiving the devastating news. It is the last known footage of two vibrant, healthy sisters alive, accompanied by their father, Andrew Barry, the man now on trial for second-degree murder in the deaths of his young daughters. Chloe and Aubrey, six and four years old respectively, seen here in surveillance footage on Christmas Eve of 2017. One day before their bodies would be discovered inside their father's Vancouver Island apartment unit, both girls allegedly stamped dozens of times. On Monday, court heard harrowing and heartbreaking testimony from the girl's mother, Barry's former partner, Sarah Cotton, who testified she last saw her daughters alive three days prior to their deaths, dropping off a stuffed toy as they were in their father's custody. Cotton telling court her daughters and Barry met her in the lobby of Barry's complex. The girls asking, Mommy, how many nights until we see you? Cotton telling them it's supposed to be three. Growing emotional as she recalled, I told the girls I loved them and I hugged them. Describing Barry at the time as being very distant, very far away, like he was thinking about something. 72 hours later, on Christmas Day, unanswered and increasingly frantic text messages when the girls weren't returned to their mother by a court-ordered deadline. Cotton warning Barry she was going to police, pleading, please let me know where you are with the girls. Cotton testifying she and Barry's mother did just that after first visiting his apartment complex, knocking forcefully on the windows of his unit to no response. It was officers who ultimately gained entry, discovering the badly injured prime suspect in this case who has pleaded not guilty and the bodies of his daughters. Cotton breaking down on the stand as she described the moment Oak Bay police delivered unthinkable news. Officers gripping her tightly, explaining Chloe and Aubrey have been injured. Cotton testifying, I thought, okay, but they're alive. Then they said they're dead. I screamed, Cotton recalls, like never before. And Cotton remained remarkably composed for the duration of that testimony today. Her former partner, the accused in this case, largely expressionless for the duration of it. Much of the line of questioning today from both sides focused on the relationship between the pair who met in 2009 when they were both working at BC Ferries. Now, this was not an easy day on the stand by any stretch for Cotton, as you might imagine. Her testimony was punctuated multiple times by objections from the defense. At one point, the defense inferred that Cotton was, quote, shaping evidence when it came to her description of her relationship with her former partner, Barry. And her testimony is not over yet. Chris Cotton is expected to be back on the stand for the duration of the day tomorrow. It would have been tough for anybody in there today. Thanks very much, Sarah McDonald, reporting in Vancouver. A second $100 million settlement announced today in a class action sexual harassment lawsuit involving the RCMP. Three years ago, it involved female members of the force. Today, women who never wore a uniform but worked with the RCMP as volunteers or municipal and contract employees got some vindication too. He put his hand between my legs at my knee and he swiped up and threw my private part area 
um, along my buttocks and flipped the back of my jacket. It's been 12 years, but Cheryl Tiller says she remembers every detail. I wanted to throw up and I wanted to climb in a hole. And of course, I wanted to cry, but I couldn't. Tiller was working as a stenographer, a city employee at the RCMP detachment in Yorkton, Saskatchewan in 2007, when she claims a sergeant sexually assaulted her at a retirement party. That whole incident was very traumatic for me because it wasn't only that it had happened to me, but because uh, everybody saw it. Tiller not alone. She's the lead plaintiff in the estimated $100 million lawsuit against the RCMP, a victory for women who did not wear the uniform. This is a historic settlement. It's huge. It gives a voice to these women. The epic deal captures roughly 41,000 non-police female employees who worked or volunteered with the RCMP since 1974. Tiller's lawyers estimate 1,500 claims for gender-based harassment. Compensation for eligible claims could range from 10000 for sexual comments to $220,000 for rape. While the total amount of claims is expected to hit roughly $100 million, this is not a cap. The award could be much higher. The lawyers say all women with eligible claims will be compensated. We've heard some, you know, truly horrifying and you know, shocking tales of egregious conduct. The sexualized harassment experienced by them was often repetitive, often lasted not only days, but in some cases years. In a statement, RCMP Commissioner Brenda Lucky tells the country, I deeply regret that these women were subject to inappropriate behavior in our workplace and apologize for the pain caused to them and their families. Harassment and discrimination do not have a place in our organization. We are accountable for our actions and continue to expand on the measures we've put in place to address conflict and inappropriate behavior in the workplace. This agreement is a further commitment from the RCMP to make right what we can. I stand humbly before you today and solemnly offer our sincere apology. It's not the RCMP's first payout. This latest deal comes three years after the force settled another landmark case, a $100 million class action brought by female members who claimed sexual harassment. Victim Services, Cheryl speaking. Tiller still works closely with the RCMP and Victim um, Services. So the sergeant, who she claims sexually assaulted her, did not face criminal charges. Uh, this sergeant was offered the option to be demoted or to retire, and he chose to retire. Going public, daunting, but keeping quiet, not an option. This is not about... Um, Cheryl Tiller fighting for Cheryl Tiller anymore, right? I need to be strong and I need to go ahead and I need to fight this and I need to say this isn't right and we need to protect women in the future. Romina Dea, Global News. Well, counsel for the plaintiffs are hopeful the settlement will be approved by the court this fall. Once that happens, women will be able to submit claims confidentially.
The RCMP are appealing for video surveillance and witnesses to a suspicious fire that broke out in a basement suite over the weekend. Two young children pulled from that fire are in hospital in critical condition. Aaron MacArthur has the latest on the investigation and why police were familiar with the home. Aaron. Yeah, RCMP certainly familiar with this address, called here just hours before the fire that's now being investigated as suspicious. As first responders race to save the lives of two kids, the only sign of a fire at this Surrey address is a burned up mattress out back. The small fire now being investigated as suspicious. The two kids in hospital listed in critical condition. It was really, I think even maybe six, seven months old, maybe oh, six months old, six so months tiny. Ah. Yeah, and he was not breathing that time. And uh, then they gave him mouth to mouth, you know, then press his chest. Then after a while, then he was moving. A man believed to be the children's father was also taken to hospital. He was released with minor injuries. The home in the 7100 block of 144B Street, a hive of activity Sunday. RCMP called to the residence early Sunday morning and fire crews called back mid-morning after reports of smoke billowing out of the basement suite. Surrey RCMP looking for any information leading to an answer of what happened. Investigators are looking for any CCTV in the area, any witnesses that may have seen what happened. They are also looking for any information from anyone that might know anything. Neighbors say the RCMP have been at this address several times over the last month. But most didn't know anything was wrong Sunday until the fire trucks arrived. Really sad. You know, when I was watching them that time, especially the little kid, it was so bad feeling that time. Anyone with information about the fire or what may have led up to the incident is asked to contact the Surrey RCMP. Investigators expected to be on scene well into Monday evening, asking the public for help, trying to piece all this together. Back to you. Thank you, Aaron. Ride-hailing companies will be able to apply to operate in B.C. starting September 3rd. And today we're getting an idea of some of the regulations that will guide this new industry. Keith Baldry is live in Victoria with more details on this story. Anything surprising or unexpected here, Keith? Not really, Sophie. It's been a long time to get to where we're at on this uh, long-running narrative of trying to bring ride-hailing into, ride into BC. The big changes, the big rules come in the fall. That's setting boundaries, fares, fleet sizes, and the like. But to get started, some little changes had to occur. So here's some of the rules that were announced today. First of all, uh, no surprise here, drivers, Uber drivers have to undergo criminal record checks and driving record checks. Uh, you don't have to have a spotless driving record, but you can have up to four uh, driving, no more than four driving infractions in which you occur points over a two-year period. So not spotless, but not certainly not uh, too bad as well. Also, as expected, a 30 cent per trip fee will be applied, not paid for by the passengers, but by the company to fund accessibility improvements to uh, vehicles uh, in ride-hailing uh, companies. And ICBC is still something to be worked out, but it will be based on kilometers driven by uh, that vehicle or that and that driver. So some of the changes announced today. One of the ones that was reaffirmed, though, was the need for drivers to have a class four license in some eyes that's a deal breaker for some companies we caught up to liberal critic jazz johal and a lyft representative of just how problematic uh, class four license requirements can be this is really about bringing reliable and affordable rides to all residents in bc this is a world-class city and it deserves world-class ride sharing and with the introduction of class four licensing 
uh, that's going to be a real impediment to the real root cause of the problem here, which has always been around supply. What's interesting here is that the NDP government continues to stick with Class 4. That's, of course, to placate the taxi lobby. And at the end of the day, this isn't going to happen without them placating the taxi lobby. So the NDP government reaffirming today that when it comes to Class 4 licenses, it is non-negotiable, which means it sounds like Lyft may not come to uh, BC after all. In any event, we should know one way or another come September when all the rules are announced. And again, the government announcing today they expect ride-hailing to be up and running in some capacity, in some area, by the end of the year. Uh, We'll wait until we actually see that happen. All right. Thanks for that, Keith Baldry and Victoria. All right. It is not quite Uber, but TransLink is launching a new pilot program that involves on-demand bus service on Bowen Island. Catherine Urquhart joins us with more on how it's all going to work. Catherine. If you're coming to Bowen Island this summer, you'll be able to take advantage of an innovative transit on-demand service. It's a pilot program that was just announced by TransLink. Need to catch a bus on Bowen? No problem. Soon, transit riders here will have tap ride. It sounds like Island Uber, and it will be a little bit of Island Uber for us, you know, as far as Uber as we're going to get, I guess. The mobile app tap ride will allow users to set their pickup and drop-off locations, estimate trip times, and track bus locations. In our ideal universe, you'll be able to optimize all of your trips from a, from a common app, whether it's a, a ride hailing, a fixed route bus, or a bike share, to complete your entire journey. A lot of the parts of the island are very isolated that aren't on the main route right now. So this is going to fill in all those little holes. On-demand services are in addition to existing bus services, and hours will be limited. Oh, that doesn't help me much. I leave early in the morning. I leave at 4.20 in the morning. I think that's a good idea because a lot of seniors and things that could probably benefit from that. That'll be pretty helpful, I think. Yeah, that, that would be cool, I think. Yeah. A lot of my friends, you know, I, I live in the cove, but they can't get to the cove a lot of the time, and it really messes up a lot of our plans. The on-demand test service runs from July 15th through September 15th. This pilot program will be closely reviewed, according to TransLink, and if successful, a similar model could be used in other areas of Metro Vancouver. Right now, though, some breaking news for you. Police on Vancouver Island are searching for two men who escaped a federal minimum security prison near Victoria last night. 30-year-old Zachary Armitage was serving a nearly 14-year sentence for robbery, aggravated assault, and other offenses. 42-year-old James Lee Bush was jailed for second-degree murder and assault. He has previously served time for aggravated sexual assault and escaping custody. Police describe both men as dangerous and say the public should not approach them. But if you see them, call 911 immediately. Now, experts warn there's a new player in Canada when it comes to white-collar crime. Street gangs and criminal organizations are now using sophisticated fraud schemes. And they're cashing in as much dirty money as when it's done with illegal drugs. John Hua has more on why gangsters see it as an easy score and who is really paying the price. From the depths of a dumpster, carelessly discarded documents. Just one way, organized crime is driving their illegal operations to a whole new level. Street thugs, no longer just focused on gang wars, illegal gambling, and drugs, now putting on a white collar to commit more sophisticated schemes. About 10 years ago, I found that criminal organizations found the tools 
to actually commit these frauds. Former RCMP investigator Henry So is now with forensic accounting firm MNP. He says everything from identity theft, cybercrime to mortgage fraud has become a massive source of cash for the criminal element. And they didn't learn how on their own. Currently right now, like, I see lawyers being retained. I see accountants and I see officials also all recruited to uh, develop these schemes. Now the key attractants, a high reward with Canadians being personally defrauded of upwards of $3 billion per year. Now add in much lower risk. It's hard to get caught if nobody calls it in. And it's estimated that 90% of fraud cases go unreported. They feel embarrassed of, of the fraud and they also think the police are, are not really interested. And also for the executives of corporations, they feel that it's the cost of doing business. And the balance of the justice system also seems skewed in favor of financial criminals. In BC, Brian Slobojan, connected to $128 million lost in the Aaron mortgage scam, was sentenced to six years. Kevin Epp, convicted of smuggling 100 kilograms of cocaine with a street value of about $10 million, got a reduced sentence of 10 years. It seems so much more lucrative to be involved in fraud with, uh, with uh, uh, the punishments not, assuming you're even caught, uh, not measuring up. In some cases, potential home buyers are left to watch their dreams pass them by. Elaborate property flipping schemes fraudulently ramping up the price of real estate. There's collusion between parties manipulating the, the prices artificially with false appraisals. Eventually, a fake identity defaults, leaving the banks with a lower-valued property. And in the case of British Columbians, new fake price comparisons to compete with. There's just so little oversight, and it was so easy to do. All parties say a crackdown is needed, which includes more policing and prosecution resources at the federal level. As organized crime moves away from casinos, fraud schemes in Canada are looking like a sure bet. John Hua, Global News. Well, is it time to accept tent cities are here to stay? The head of the Downtown Vancouver Business Improvement Association says the status quo just can't continue. After a number of events had to be cancelled because of the tent city at Oppenheimer Park, there are calls for the city to step up to improve the situation and sanction a spot for people to stay. Grace Key reports. This one is called... Ever since it was announced that a few events were moving from their traditional Oppenheimer Park location, there's been lots of discussion about the tent city that's currently there, and some saying it's time for the city of Vancouver to sanction tent cities. There needs to be a better way of doing this than uh, what's been an ongoing problem for years in the city of people setting up camps illegally. This is on in 2014, a tent city was dismantled at Oppenheimer Park after it grew to more than 200 tents. The city set up interim housing at a former downtown hotel with many from the park moving in. And it worked good, the park was cleaned out, the people had a good place to live. I'm pushing to do something like that now. An estimated 80 to 100 people currently live at the park. In March, Vancouver City Councillor Jean Swanson first introduced the idea of a sanctioned tent city, calling for warming stations, washrooms and storage for campers. The only thing we got out of this five-part motion was porta-potties. And it's really frustrating and it's been hard on the people there. The park board says the baseball diamonds are not usable in an area that is already deficient in parks. I think we were expecting by now that uh, the city would have had a plan to perhaps move these people into housing and, and keep the park safe 
uh, for everybody so everybody can enjoy the park. It would make a lot more sense to have people uh, within one local area and then provide those wraparound services. You know, it just seems to make a lot more sense than what we see now throughout our city where we have people camping out. The city says it continues to work with the park board, fire police and its outreach team to improve safety in the park and connect people with social services. Grace Key, Global News. A shocking revelation today by B.C.'s civil liberties making public a report showing Canada's spy agency had local pipeline protesters under surveillance. The lawyers say CSIS even shared their information with the oil companies. Richard Zussman has been delving into the report. If you protested the Enbridge Northern Gateway Pipeline, Canada's spy agency may have you on file. This collection of documents suggests that the spy agency CSIS gathered significant information about the peaceful protest and organizing of individuals and groups. The BC Civil Liberties Association releasing thousands of pages of these heavily redacted documents on Monday by the Canadian Security Intelligence Service in connection to allegations the organization spied on protesters. For our community members who, who heard about this, really was a shocking betrayal. Um, of their of their trust in their government. The documents are now online in a searchable database called the Protest Papers. They allege Canada's spy agency welcomed reports from the energy industry, kept information in their own files, and then gave additional information back to those oil companies. It's clear that the state is using its resources to spy on the opponents of big oil. The Civil Liberties Association challenged the accusations in court and CSIS was found not to be in violation. Adding, quote, in 2017, the Security Intelligence Review Committee investigated and dismissed the complaint at hand in this matter, finding that CSIS had not acted outside of its mandate and that its activities were reasonable and necessary. UBC sociologist David Tyndall says what's in these documents is not at all surprising. But it could have a larger impact, especially with large protests over the expansion of the Trans Mountain Pipeline expected soon. It creates a bit of a, a sense of distrust for, for people in what we often call civil society. And in that sense, it's a little bit of a, an erosion of democracy. It also leaves a lot of uncertainty for these protesters over whether their every move is being watched. Richard Zussman, Global News. Still on the pipeline topic, a coalition of environmental groups has launched a new legal challenge against the Trans Mountain pipeline expansion. EcoJustice filed the suit Monday morning, arguing the Liberal government failed to comply with its responsibility to protect critically endangered southern resident killer whales when it reapproved the project last month. EcoJustice was part of the legal challenge that won a case in August of last year that led to the Federal Court of Appeal striking down the initial approval. Well, we say that uh, the Cabinet and the National Energy Board have failed to follow the direction of the Federal Court of Appeal when they said that, um, the cabinet, that there had to be measures to mitigate the adverse effects on southern residents before the project was approved. We say that hasn't happened. I think we have fulfilled it. I certainly personally am very committed to the recovery of the south resident killer whale, southern resident killer whale. I am very personally concerned. I've spent four years working on species at risk issues in this country and, uh, and I do believe that we have faithfully fulfilled our duty.
Another cruise ship close call in Venice after a huge ocean liner nearly slammed into the shoreline. Rain, wind and hail were battering the city as the ship approached and it was forced to make a hard right in front of an outdoor cafe. It missed, but just barely. This comes just a month after another cruise ship rammed a smaller boat along a Venice canal. All of this adding to the growing calls for a ban on cruise ships entering the busy lagoon. Well, the Italian city of Verona also hit by a powerful hailstorm. Video shared on social media showed torrents of water flowing down narrow streets as large hailstones fell. The unusual summer weather came a day after authorities issued a yellow alert for rain and high winds. That storm lasted about 15 minutes. A friend of presidents and Prince Andrew, among others, is in jail tonight accused of running an underage sex trafficking ring. The charges against billionaire Jeffrey Epstein reigniting the controversy over a plea deal on earlier charges. The allegations are horrifying. Children who are asked to engage in direct and indirect sex acts for money. By Wall Street billionaire Jeffrey Epstein, according to federal agents who pulled evidence from his New York mansion during a weekend search. Evidence including uh, nude photographs of what appeared to be underage girls. The 66-year-old financier pleading not guilty this afternoon to federal charges of sex trafficking and conspiracy. Prosecutors say the abuse continued for years and included dozens of victims. Reporters at the Miami Herald have interviewed several of Epstein's accusers. All Jeffrey cared about was, go find me more girls. He wanted new, fresh, young faces every single day. I started going to him when I was like 14, 15. There's been no comment from Epstein's lawyers since his arrest. He's already a registered sex offender, pleading guilty in 2008 to state charges of soliciting and procuring a minor for prostitution. Epstein spent 13 months in jail, part of a widely criticized plea deal. Lawyers for his accusers also speaking out today. They've gone through years and years and years of being attacked, of being maligned, uh, by Mr. Epstein and his enablers. Many, he says, now looking forward to their day in court. Jay Gray, NBC News. Another shocking day at the trial of actor Kevin Spacey, who's pleaded not guilty to a charge of indecent assault and battery. You have anything you want to say? The man who accused Spacey of groping him at a bar in 2016 took the stand in Massachusetts to explain why his cell phone is missing. But after finishing his testimony, he invoked his Fifth Amendment rights, striking his testimony from the record. The cell phone that contained texts to friends from the accuser saying Spacey was groping him at an Nantucket pub has gone missing. Spacey's lawyer suggests some of the information on that phone could help the actor's defense. It's unclear at this point what effect today's developments will have on the remainder of the trial. Some more breaking news for you now. The Coquihalla Highway is closed in both directions just south of Merritt because of an accident. No word at this point on exactly what happened, whether there were any injuries or when that road will reopen. But we'll keep an eye on the situation and update you uh, if more details become available. Now, big troubles for some of Canada's mobile, mobile phone carriers over the past 24 hours with technical issues preventing many people from making or receiving calls. And as Global Sean O'Shea reports, it's also affecting 911 service. 
It didn't affect everyone with a phone, but almost all of Canada's mobile providers have been experiencing similar problems connecting calls, and it hasn't gone over well. On Twitter, a Rogers customer said, for over a week it's been happening. Another, I almost broke my phone in frustration. And Rogers always has a problem with their network. In fact, it wasn't just Rogers with issues, most of which began Sunday afternoon. The Toronto-based communications company acknowledged it had a glitch, telling Global News in a statement, Voice services are restoring with a very limited number of customers experiencing intermittent interruption to voice calls. The problem with carriers also affected 911 emergency service. Several police services which manage 911 centers say incoming calls mysteriously dropped off. Same thing when calls were transferred to services like fire departments. The Toronto Fire Service said it had the same problem calls that didn't connect properly, and frequent busy signals when operators tried to redial the caller. With more Canadians dumping generally robust landlines in favor of mobile phones for communications, if something goes wrong with a network, the service may not work. And none of the carriers is saying what went wrong or why competing carriers are experiencing similar problems. Freedom Mobile described a degraded quality of service, which included wireless voice calls being dropped and many customers being unable to place or receive wireless voice calls. Canada's mobile phone industry isn't back to normal yet, an industry that's depended upon more than ever as sometimes the only means to make a call. Sean O'Shea, Global News. In health matters tonight, the NDP government has announced a new service to support youth with mental health and addiction issues. The One Care Plan will start in Maple Ridge and Pitt Meadows and set up integrated teams that will work closely with school and specialized service providers. Students who need help will no longer have to talk to several different care providers. The Pathway to Hope focuses on our most urgent priorities first, so that we're helping people when they need it now, and reducing demand on services down the road. And there was absolutely no question, everybody we spoke to across the province, that our approach needs to begin with improved wellness for children, youth, and young adults. The program will expand to four more school districts over the next two years, and the government says all districts will get new services for young people. No, it's not a circus performance, although it kind of looks that way. How it's part of everyday life in northeastern Japan, coming up right after the forecast. What's that family called? The monkey family? No. Yeah, <laughs> what are you doing? The high wire family. Oh, <laughs> right, the Walendas. Right, sister and brother. Them. The Walendas. <laughs> now I know what you the mean. The monkey family. <laughs> All right, Christy Gordon is here with a look at our weather forecast. This is... This is the nicest day today. It might be, yes, yes. Okay. So I, I had uh, George uh, in Williams Lake sending me this. Yes, it is George, not Jorge. I spoke with him. And uh, yeah, it could be the nicest day of the week. We're seeing near seasonal values, and this is the scene out there right now across the lower mainland. Uh, in the coast, uh, we're low 20s, but inland regions are in upper 20s, right where we should be. We do still have a severe thunderstorm watch in effect, and we're watching a very strong band of thunderstorms right now that is making their way close to Highway 16. So in not too long, anyone traveling that area will see incredible downpours of rain, uh, possibility of hail, and certainly lightning. That's one of the main things that we're watching. Incredible amount of lightning strikes right now. In fact, we've got 45 fires burning across the province right now, which is fairly good for this time of year, but 35 out of those 45 are because of lightning. Uh, and it's not going to change much over the next little while as we continue with this trend. However, the rainfall has been 
very helpful in most parts of the province. It's really just the northwestern corner of our province that has the driest conditions. But look at this system that is headed our way. So tomorrow will be mostly dry. We'll start to see increasing cloud later on. But this system is going to head towards us by the evening hours, bringing periods of rain. And this is more likely like what we would see in November, 20 to 40 millimeters of rain potentially. So here's your tomorrow. Not a lot going on. Some rainfall across the north. But it's tomorrow night through our Wednesday that we'll see the rainfall and it will mainly be across coastal regions, some rainfall in the interior as well. So this is your tomorrow, backing up and looking at tomorrow, showers for northern regions across the south, a mix of sun and cloud. And temperatures nice and warm tomorrow, so above seasonal, although we will drop as that rainfall pushes in. So mostly dry tomorrow, increasing cloud, rain developing tomorrow evening. It will be wet Tuesday night and Wednesday. Plan some indoor activities for the kids, everyone. Showers still on Thursday, but we break out of it finally on Friday and Saturday. And I'll leave you with another nice shot of our one nice day of the week from uh, Silverdale Creek <laughs> Wetlands. Thanks to Alexandra for that. All right. One. Thanks, Christy. Yeah. One's better than none, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, now to the uh, primate Walendas, a surprising <laughs> sight in northeastern Japan, even for people who live with primates on a daily basis. About 20 monkeys, as you can see, taking a shortcut across a river using power lines as a rope bridge. They dashed across the river after fireworks were used to scare them away. Primates are a part of the everyday scenery for residents there, but it's not often that they would see this many in one place and putting on a circus act. That little guy going hand yeah, over hand, foot over what? foot. Like he was, he was going faster than anybody else. Okay, I, kind of fun. How did they not get electrocuted? It's, it's a good Very question. good question. Because they're to, not grounded. Okay. Yeah, but actually if you have two hands, can't the electrocution go through you? One hand to the other, actually. That's a good I'm point. I'm not going to try it. Let's yeah. not test it out. Mm-hmm. Just be <laughs> thankful. Apparently monkeys are immune to electricity. <laughs> okay. A win is a win is a win, maybe? What I don't did know. did you say earlier? It's one is better than none? Yeah, that's true. Okay, it applies also in football as opposed, well, as well as weather. Uh, okay, Devon Claybrook's first win as a head coach and the BC Lions' first win this season came about in Toronto on Saturday in that most Canadian of ways, a single point, for a missed field goal. It's called a rouge. And for those who don't like it, it (laughs) seems to be rewarding failure. It's kind of like giving half a goal for hitting the post in hockey. But it's in the rules, and it has been forever. But when it happens, especially on the final play of the game, it's one of those, oh yeah, I forgot about that moments. Even for the Lions, who won because of it. Honestly, all my thought process was just making it. You know, and my whole entire like, I've been here. I've done this before. I'm like, I'm going to make this three points. Kick is up and it is wide. And now Ray he's has to. He's out. He's out of bounds. And the single is good enough. Your thoughts on the, watching the boys win on a rouge? <laughs> well, I was kind of, I was screaming at the TV when I, when I saw him. Saw he missed the field goal and then I just went quiet. Like, wait a minute. Wait, oh. Canada football, man. Canadian football. I love it. Ah, yes, the rouge. It's about as Canadian as maple syrup and bacon. A single point football fans in Canada have debated about for decades. A point newcomers to the CFL need constant reminding about. Ah, I didn't notice until I looked at Coach RP and I was like, we won? We won? I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He stepped in the end zone or in the back end, out of balance. I'm like, oh. 
well, let's go. You know, I mean, I'll take it how we can get it, and a win is a win. doesn't matter. I actually argued with a ref one time when I threw an interception in the end zone and they didn't take it out. I was like, well, we get a point. He's like, no, you don't. I was like, man, I don't even get a point for that. So, yeah, it's, it can be a bit confusing. That's the first time I think in my career that I've ever had a game where we won on a rouge. I had a lot of text messages after the game that like explain me what just happened. So I had to, ex- I had to create a, a mass text message just send it all at once. So I wouldn't be explaining and explaining it. But uh, and they didn't know it could happen on punts too. So they got a little CFL one-on-one lesson after that for sure. And here's the thing about the CFL's single point: the rouge truly is a game changer, one that's always in the back of a coach's mind. Those hidden points in a game come into play more times than not. It's just that ours ended on a rouge, but you got to think if you score seven and then you get a rouge eight, now they have to go for two. And those happen few and far more times than a rouge at the end. So the rouge plays in, is an integral part of the game and up through the course of the game. It's just that ours was at the end, so therefore it gets lost in translation a little bit. The Canucks haven't signed Brock Besser yet, but they seem to be having no problem signing the lesser-known players. Today it was left-winger Francis Perron, who uh, got a one-year deal. They got him in a trade with the Sharks. He'll start in the minors, and who knows when or if we'll ever see him in Vancouver. He has yet to play an NHL game after three years in the minors. Okay, on the Wimbledon, Milos Ronic, Guido Pella. Now, Ronic looked good, really good for a while. Wins the second set, goes up 2 nothing or 2-love. But maybe this was a sign things were going to go the other way. Watch Ronich here. Uh, whiff! What? For a hole in the racket? Nope, he just whiffed. Okay, he lost the third set, 6-3. Does get this point here. The tweener from Pella, no. He's up 5-3 and serving for the win. Doesn't come through. They go to a tie break. Come on! And Pella forces a fifth set in the fifth set. Nope. And now, this is no way to lose. Into the net. 46 unforced errors by Ronich, and he is out at Wimbledon. Home run derby, it's all-star time in the majors and Vlad Guerrero Jr. of the Blue Jays' first round hit a record 29 home runs. Here's a slow-mo of his swing. I'm not necessarily surprised with when you break And if he wins this tonight, it'll be all in the family because back in 2007, his Hall of Fame father, Vladimir Guerrero Sr., won the home run derby. Gather round, everybody. Mm-hmm. A story about Finding your groove again after uh, a long layoff. Squire, this is a good one, and we know you love music. Well, in the 80s, it was very, a very good, well, there always has been a good music scene in Vancouver, but there was a really good music scene in the 80s here, and there was a band around that time called The Gathering. And if you watched local bands, you might be wondering, oh, yeah, them. Whatever happened to them? I'm going to show you whatever happened to them. This is a story of getting the band, or in this case, the gathering, back together. Yeah, we uh, started in uh, 19, about 1984. You said the first gig was where? Uh, a place called The Love Affair, which yes. doesn't exist anymore. Kind of magical to play there, and, uh, and it kind of kicked it off uh, for us.
But after just over three years of being a band, the gathering broke up in 1988. We were at edge because we were young and full of ego and stupidity, as you all are when you're, you know, 20s. So they joined the real world, jobs, families, and then they thought it might be fun to get back together and do one more show. Except there was a problem. They couldn't find their singer. I'm, I, I have to be honest, I, I'm not really one of these, I don't follow the hype when it comes to social media. It was these odd sightings, it's like the Sasquatch. Someone say, I think I seen, I think I seen him. Yeah. yeah, I think I seen Pete Burns. And no, it's like, then, he, and then we'd let it go for a few years and then we'd all start looking again. He was finally discovered playing for an over 50 soccer team. Ran into Rick Arbois, who used to be the president or work at, at Network Records. And uh, after the game, he said, are you the Peter Burns? Yes, I think you are. Yeah, I think I've got somebody that's been wanting to get, get in touch with you for a little while. So after 30 years apart, they regathered themselves. And it was instantly rewarding. My kids had never seen me play the drums. Uh, the first time we played, they both came and watched, and they were just uh, dad rocker. It was, uh, I, I could see them in the crowd with their eyes just beating up. Another reward is a record company in Germany heard the new songs they wrote and signed them to a deal, which is great. But reconnecting old friends is the best part of all for getting the gathering back together. We were deadly serious as kids, even though we were way in over our heads and there was no chance we were going to make it, whatever you want to call that. At this point, we we Every show we play is a gift, and every time we get together, it's just, it's just fun. So we look forward to it and uh, make the best of it. Can you imagine finding out your dad played the drums in a rock band? <laughs> Not having a clue and then you get to that? see him on stage? <laughs> That'd be cool. That would be cool. Yeah. There right. you go. Final word on the weather before we go? Sure, so not bad tomorrow, but by the evening you can expect the rain to move in, and Wednesday's going to be pretty wet, unfortunately. All right. Thanks for watching. Rock on, everybody. (laughs) Have a good night.